Well, it's a blessing to be with you all this morning. Today we're going to um, read uh, out of John chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 1. And uh, what a beautiful morning it is today as you wake up and um, walk outside. And I-, I love the spring in Tucson. This is the best place in the world to be right now, <laughs> in my opinion. And mornings like this, I'm reminded, this is why I moved here. I remember. Well, to prepare a bit for our... Um, Scripture today, I'd like to begin to stir your thoughts on uh, an issue of ordinary, what it means to be ordinary. Um, And we're going to pray in a a moment for our passage and and read it in in a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to think about that. And today is not an ordinary morning, but it's a glorious morning for so many reasons. Uh, Weather uh, is set aside. It's glorious because this is the day that God has made. If If I greeted you all this morning and I came up here and I said... Uh, it's an ordinary morning. Welcome to Desert Springs. Um, you're ordinary people. <laughs> uh, you all look very ordinary this morning. Uh, you might wonder why I was being so enthusiastic or lack of enthusiastic for such an ordinary and plain day. Um, if you were to come up to me and ask me, how you been lately? And I said, ordinary. You wouldn't say, great. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, You might be a little cautious, or even you might even have a little pity and compassion on me, right? If any of you uh, were described, uh, you you know, you, you, uh, maybe your your child, uh, your uh, growing boy or daughter was uh, about to bring home uh, a friend, a girlfriend, or a boyfriend, and introduce you to this person, and say, "Well, well, thank you for bringing her. She was very ordinary looking." Um, That might not be the best compliment you could give uh, to them. Achieving an ordinary life is not many of your ambitions, I would suppose, right? Uh, you don't wake up in the morning and say, I hope uh, today my ambitions are ordinary. Um, you can achieve that pretty much without trying, right? Uh, but doing, creating, and, and witnessing something extraordinary is something that we all look forward to being a part of. We set our goals that way. We, we want to be a part of something uh, that God has made extraordinary, above the ordinary, the last thing that we want to be ordinary is our faith. Uh, we do not want an ordinary faith. And I'm excited about this passage this morning because as we work through Scripture and we read through this passage, we're going to look at a very ordinary faith and how it's opposite of the kind of faith that Christ wants for you and me. And it's different than the kind of faith he, wants, faith he wants you and I to live out every single day. So let's read our passage this morning. And, and as we read it, I want you to think upon that, that kind of concept of ordinary faith and thinking about the characters in this passage and, um, and how it stands in opposition to what Christ would have us to do. And we'll walk through it together. So let's read in John chapter 6. I'll read a passage starting in verse 1. After this, uh, which was Jesus had just uh, witnessed, um, he had just committed some miracles, and he had been um, uh, talking about, uh, well, he healed on the Sabbath. And so after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Uh, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 
200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who, have, who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who hadn't eaten. When the people saw the signs that had been done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this passage, we see that there are lines of Scripture that are not there by accident. That there are conversations that are happening here that are not by accident. That you want us to see this story and be in the middle of it and be fed spiritually by these words and to leave this place strengthened in our faith, not leaving with an ordinary faith, but leaving with an extraordinary faith. Help us today as we walk through this to see what that means and what that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like, you to bring, I'd like to bring you into this scene because maybe this is a passage that many of you have, have read on your own many times. Maybe it's a passage that you've even read to your children to show of the extraordinary miraculous gifts, uh, miraculous uh, actions of Christ. Uh, maybe it's a sermon that you've heard preached before. Um, and for me, as I was walking through this passage, I had to really look at it with fresh eyes. And I wanted to see myself in the midst of this, of this story, as a participant, as one of Jesus' followers and disciples, right in the middle of this, of this event. And so I invite you all to, to see what is going on in this story and to place yourself right in the middle of it. Up to this point, Jesus' close disciples were, they were new followers of Jesus. He had just picked a few, and they had invited others to come, and he has now this intimate group of people that are following him. They saw him just turn water into wine at the wedding. They saw him storm into the temple and overturn tables with anger over how they were treating God's house. They saw him heal a boy that wasn't even in his presence, but he spoke it into being. And this boy was healed just by Christ's words, and they were witnesses of this. They saw him heal a cripple who hadn't walked in over 38 years. And now Jesus is quite a celebrity where this crowd of thousands of people are following him. And these close disciples of his are just watching, and they're a part of this. And they're, can you imagine what that would feel like to be a part of that company? To be of one of Jesus' close friends, to be taught by him, and, and saying, This is my, I mean, this is my mentor, this is my rabbi, this is my discipler. What an honor. Jesus is followed by a crowd of thousands of people. And, and a lot of scholars, as we, we look at this 5,000 men, it talks about 5,000 men, and many scholars would even say this doesn't include women and children. And some would even say that there are upwards of 20,000 people now following Christ in this crowd including women and children. 
So John, the eyewitness, tells us that 5,000 men ate. Maybe there's even 20,000 people that are there. You have the disciples who are privileged to be following Christ and under his teaching, the inner circle that is sitting with Christ on this mountainside, on this mountaintop, where there's grass all around. And they look up and they see this crowd coming in. And over to the side, there's a young poor boy who has five barley loaves and three small fish, maybe even the size of sardines. This little, maybe pickled fish that he's carrying around that is Mother packed for him a lunch. And we know he's poor. Barley was the absolute poor man's food. It was not the good wheat that uh, you would use for soft bread. This was just, this was poor bread. Barley loaves. And already I'm drawn into this passage because as this story unfolds, we're, we don't know what's going to happen. Jesus doesn't let his disciples know what is happening. And each step of the way, you know a little bit more and more and more. And I'm drawn into it because isn't that how our lives unfold? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen after we leave here today. And yet we are followers of Christ, or he invites us on this journey. And even if we're not disciples of Christ, we still don't know what's going to happen. And the only one who does know is God. And he doesn't tell us right away, but he unfolds his plan in in our lives little by little. I'm frustrated at times when I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or I don't know what plans God has for me. He invites me into something and I don't know how it's going to all shape up. I feel like sometimes my life kind of feels like an episode of Lost. Anybody watch that show? If you don't know what that, if you know what it is, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what it is, I'll, I'll just sum it up here. If you haven't seen the show, this is, this is all you need to know. For every question that's answered in that show, there's ten new ones that go unanswered, Right? So you watch week to week, and my wife and I really love this. We really follow it and, and enjoy it, are intrigued by it, but it, we're frustrated by it. Every, after every show is over, we feel more unhappy and frustrated than when we started. <laughs> they answer one question, ten more go unanswered, or they raise new questions. Sometimes I feel like that's what our life is kind of like. As we pursue trying to understand God's hand in our life, one question may be answered, and then ten new ones come up. And so I'm drawn into this story, and I hope you guys are too. And here, so we have Philip. The dialogue begins with Philip here. And Christ, as he sees this crowd coming, he turns to Philip and he says, Where are we to buy food for all of these people? Now Jesus knows, by the text here, we know Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly how this plan is going to unfold. He's the only one who knows. And so he turns to Philip and he, and he asks him this question to test him to expose Philip's heart. And it's not for Christ's benefit that that he does this, that he asks this question to Philip, because he knows what's going to happen. But he does this for Philip's benefit, to expose what his real heart is. He does it for our benefit. And sometimes God gives us situations. He, he, He gets us involved in situations that are for our benefit. They are... Tests. They're designed to expose our real heart, our real nature. Jesus knows how we would react in a certain situation. He's not surprised by it. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow because he has ordained it. But he unfolds it for us for our benefit. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, this may have been, actually, it's probably six or seven years ago, maybe even a little longer in Tucson here. 
it was winter time, and I was going into a grocery store in the central area of town, central area of town. And since it was Christmas, they had the Salvation Army uh, bell ringers out there, right? Uh, you all, you've seen those every year. You, you can probably hear it going on in your ears right now. Um, and as I was going into the store, the bell ringer, uh, the man, I took a glimpse at him, and he was in, in his mid-30s. Um, he had a severely disfigured face. And I, 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 even though, when I say severely, I can't even uh, do it justice. Um, I, was, there was, I was actually I was terrified to approach this man because of how disfigured he was. Um, I would go out of my way when I went to that store as I saw him because he was so nice. He was greeting everybody as they came into the store and as they left. And I remember purposely mapping out this chart or uh, this, this, this path to avoid being confronted by him. You know, he didn't have a little scar or a birthmark or anything like that, but it looked like he had been in such a, 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 such a tragic accident. It was hard to look at. And as I went in the store, I got my things, and I was so anxious on how I was going to exit that store. And when I left, I kind of went to the side and tried to avoid him. And he was doing such a good job of blessing people and saying, have a great day and Merry Christmas and um, God bless you. And I was like, don't, I don't want him to say anything to me. I don't want to confront him. And I, he could tell that I was not coming out the front door. I was kind of going to the side. And he turns to me and he says, have a wonderful day. And you know what I did? I pretended like I didn't hear him. And I kept walking. I went to my car. And I drove away. And I got maybe five, seven miles away. And I was, I was completely destroyed inside. I was exposed completely torn in half, and my heart was exposed to really my heart, my lack of compassion, my lack of love, my lack of mercy, my lack of pity, my lack of acceptance for this person because of a physical defect, because of an accident that he had, who knows when. This was not to benefit Christ, and he, didn't want, he wasn't trying to see, Pete, I'm going to put you in this situation and see how you respond. He knew how I was going to respond. But he did it to test me and to expose my faith, really my lack of faith. And I couldn't ignore how I felt and how shamed and humbled and uh, humiliated that I felt. And I actually drove back. Ten minutes later, I drove back to the store. And I walked right up to him, and I looked him right in the face and in his eyes, and I said, thank you so much, for wishing me a well day. And I embraced him as a brother, and I said, I hope you have a great day today. God bless you. And I left. And, and, and immediately, you know, you have those situations when you know you have to do something, and until you do it, you're just eaten up. And, and immediately when, you, when it happens, you just feel this, these, this weight off your shoulders. Well, that's what happened. Well, this was a situation for me that exposed my true faith. This is what Christ is doing with Philip. He is... He knows exactly what's going to happen, but he presents Philip with a challenge to expose what he is really made up of, what his character really is. So we go back to Philip, and Christ's question, he exposes the nature of of Philip's faith, and Philip's faith was nothing but ordinary. 
Now, he doesn't reject Christ. He doesn't walk away and deny Christ. But his faith was just ordinary, and that's it. Philip says 200 denarii couldn't even pay for enough bread that would feed his people. 200 denarii is about eight months' worth of wages for him. And it's just like us. When God gives us this glimpse of our life and he says, this is what I'm calling you to do. And most often it's big picture stuff, right? Rarely does God map out a detailed map of what he would like us to do each day. But it's just like us. And Philip speaks so true to our nature. It's just like us. When God gives us a big picture, we break it down into little details. And we get so caught up in those little things. He says, Jesus says, where are we going to buy bread? And it's almost like Philip is saying, where? More like, how, Jesus? Jesus, you're forgetting this small detail. How could you have neglected this? You're already, Jesus, on A to Z, you're at J, and we need to be at B. And so Philip is thinking, where? More like, how? The weakness in Philip's faith was that it was just ordinary. He was able to trust Jesus just as far as he could see him. Let me explain this a little bit. When Philip was trying to figure out a solution to this problem, what Jesus wanted him to do, he may have asked himself, what would I do in this situation to fix this problem? Right? Well, Philip, this was his hometown right here in Bethesda. It was his hometown, and he needed bread. What would he do? Well, he would get money, and if he didn't have enough money, what would he do? He would start a a fundraising committee, right? He would get people together. He'd go around and see how much money he could get. He would um, research. He would say, okay, this committee, go out and research the different markets to get the best price to see how how far we can make our money go, right? Philip was thinking, what would I do in this situation if I were God? And we do that so much. And when our faith is just ordinary, we act like that. When God calls us to do something, we say, well, if I, uh, what would God do? Well, if, if God were me, what would he do? And we put him, we only, we only trust him as far as we can see what he could do. Philip was doing that. Sometimes our faith is ordinary too. We have a tendency to limit God to working with only, within only certain, normal, ordinary, everyday means. But I want you to know what's about to happen is a miracle is about to happen. Because God does not operate on, on ordinary means. God performs miracles. That's what we're about to see. And then there's Andrew, right? There's another character in this, in this story that we know that John tells us about. There's Andrew. And I give Andrew a little bit more credit because he goes a little further, but still he falls short. So let's look at that. Andrew sees this little poor boy with a lunch and possibly asks, okay, I just saw Jesus turn water into wine at this wedding. Maybe he can do something with this little lunch this boy has. His faith is getting closer, but it still falls short. Because there, Philip, or Andrew says, here's a boy with five barley loaves and three fish, but then what does he say? He says, but what are they for so many? And so I'm excited because I see Andrew, wow, he's about to go out on a limb here and trust Christ, but he puts in that disclaimer. Jesus, you've, you, you're a God of miracles, but really, I don't see that, how that can work out in this situation. And so again, he's limiting Christ, and he's, his faith is ordinary. There's an obvious distance here between 
what the need is and what the resources are available. If there were, in fact, 20,000 people, there is a Grand, Grand Canyon-sized gap between the need and the resources. Philip says, I'm prepared to give all that I have, all the money. I'm, I will drain my bank account for you, Jesus. And Andrew says, barley and fish, well, it's not even close. So what's this story real about? really about? As we will find, it's not about Jesus feeding people because they were hungry. It's about Jesus being able to spiritually feed people because they are spiritually hungry. What Jesus will teach his disciples, which includes us here today as we read this, is that there is a great distance between our spiritual needs each and every day and the spiritual resources that we have on our own. There's a Grand, grand Canyon-sized gap between our need for Christ and the resources that we have in order to fill that need. And here's two great examples of two people that say, I can't even come close the dialogue that Jesus has later in this chapter will divide his disciples. Literally, it will divide those who have ordinary faith and those who have real, true, extraordinary faith in Christ. So I'll read a little further down in this passage. You can follow along in verse 27. We ended in 15. Let's pick up in 27. Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Isn't that funny? Feeding 20,000 isn't enough. What sign, Jesus, will you do to show us that you are extraordinary? What work do you perform? Our fathers, uh, verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. After saying this, literally many of his disciples packed up and left. Why? Because he was talking about something that was not ordinary. He was asking them to have faith that is extraordinary. Jesus goes on to say, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood to have any part in eternal life. True, true faith is something that we see here with his next disciple that he confronts. After all these people leave, Jesus turns to Peter. And what does he say? He says, are you going to go also? And Peter says, where else am I going to go? In verse 68. He said, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We've seen what ordinary faith looks like. 
ordinary faith is saying, God, this is what I can see that you're capable of doing in my life, but nothing more. And so I will involve myself, I will fellowship with you as long as you continue to not surprise me or until, as long as you continue to do what I think you're capable of doing. But as, long, as, as soon as you get really weird or call me to do anything really radical, then I got to go. That's ordinary faith. True faith is a complete and total abandonment of our own means to spiritual intimacy with Christ. This is what Peter did. True faith is absolute dependence on Jesus Christ. And this was hard for so many people. When they realized that, whoa, Jesus is, now he's starting to get very serious. And all I wanted was food. I was just hungry. And I thought if I hang out with Jesus, he'll continue to bless me and and I'll have a good life and things will go well for me. And as soon as they realized that more sacrifice was needed, they left. And this will be times... There will be times where this is hard for you as well and hard for me. There will be times when Christ will call you into a relationship that requires a real life sacrifice to abandon your own dependence on yourself or even on other people. I think Philip here was depending on his own. He's like, well, I've saved up money. Here's what I have to offer God. I can give you what I have. And it's almost like Andrew was like, well, I don't have anything, but... This guy over here can give something, and so I'm going to rely on somebody else. We do that, don't we? I'll rely on my mom or my dad or my, my, my uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, my husband, my wife. I'll rely on my pastor or my Bible study leader because they're more spiritual than me, and they'll just help me kind of, they'll, I'll kind of live vicariously through them. They'll help me get what I need from God. But that's an ordinary faith, and that's not what Christ calls us to. There'll be times when he calls us to a complete dependence on him, an abandonment of anything that we're capable of doing. So how can we respond to this passage? How do we do that? How do we live out that complete abandonment to Christ? Here's one thing we can do is examine yourself. We can examine ourselves. And this is what Jesus was doing with Philip, was he was testing him. He was examining him. And I love this word because... I didn't like this passage at first when I read that passage. Jesus was testing Philip. And I thought, not cool, Jesus. I know what a lot of tests are like, and they're never fun. This is not a school test. This is not, this is not an evaluation of your ability. Christ does not test us in that era because he knows what we're capable of. But this test, I was doing some looking around, and, and I was intrigued by this passage in Hebrews. When it was talking about the Hebrew people that were persecuted by Nero, the Christians that were persecuted, they would physically and literally be cut in half by the sword and split open. And this word that they use for cut in half is is, is the same verb that Jesus used here when it says he tested Philip. When Christ tests us, he brings us into situations that literally expose our faith. It cuts us in half so we can see our insides, our spiritual insides, our emotional insides, and see where does our loyalty and dedication really lie. Those things happen every single day. God tests us. He examines us. He, he, uh, his word cuts into our heart. 
This is how he disciples us. This is how he encourages us in our faith. It's not the kind of test you receive in school. And this is what it doesn't mean. When I say examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith, I'm not saying, okay, everybody else, uh, on, on Friday night, I want everybody to go out. And I want you to put yourself in a highly um, uh, compromising situation. And to see how you pass. If you don't give in to that temptation, then A+. Plus. But if you fail, then, okay, you failed the test. That's not what this kind of test is. And some, some people think that, well, I, I'm going to go out in these situations and, and really push the envelope and really dance really close to a sin lifestyle because it's, temp, it's testing me. It's examining my faith. It's not. It's just foolish. This kind of testing is look, taking a deep look into your heart and ask yourself this. Do your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your motives, your words, your conversations, your passions, your emotions, do they give evidence of a life that has been changed by Christ? And I think every single one of us can answer that question when we really look into our hearts. And we look at our life and look at everything that we're thinking and doing and things that people can't even see but only God can see and only things that we know in the, in the deepest parts of our heart. Have those parts been dedicated to Christ for His glory? That's what it means to examine yourself. So I encourage everybody in here as we look at this passage to examine yourself and see, is my faith ordinary? And if it is, that's okay because we can go forward because Christ still calls us each and every day to this confession and repentance and we can still follow him. The second thing I would like you to do is to persevere. We need that every single day in our lives because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring or next year or 10 years from now. We don't know God's plans and how they're going to unfold for us. And he knows. But as we are waiting and as we are discerning, we need to persevere. If there were, in fact, 20,000 people on this grassy hill, how would you like to be the 20,000th person who got meal, who got that fish and bread? I wouldn't like that at all. But I tell you what, if they stuck around, they got the meal. And they had their fill. And they had enough to satisfy them. We need to persevere in the same way. Knowing that God loves us. He knows what's going to happen. And he will not forsake us and leave us. We can put our confidence in his steadfast love, in his faithfulness. Knowing that that nurturing, that that spiritual meal will come. I used, to, I used to be left so many times by my family everywhere. The zoo, the grocery store. I'm one of seven kids. Um, six looks a lot like seven. So if six was in the car, they're like, we're good, we're going home. And it was always me, the middle child, who got left behind. But you know, we had a really good rule, though. If you ever get lost, and you've probably told your kids this too, stay exactly where I left you, Right? Don't, don't come looking for me. Don't go finding me. because Don't go wandering off. And don't go grumble and say, oh, I can't believe they left me again. I'm going to take this into my, into my own hands. Because that's, that's just a disaster. 
And I remember one specific time I got left at Kroger, right? Kroger, in east of the Mississippi, it's called Kroger. Over here, it's called Fry's. That's why you see a lot of Kroger stuff in Fry's. Look next time. You know. I got left there, and what I did, I just went out to the curb, and I just sat on the curb and waited. And I, I was like five. You know what? I was, in, I was actually in diapers. I was one. No, I'm just kidding. It was, it was a little later than that. But I, and I would remember, I was never afraid. Because they, they always come back. Eventually, six looks like six. <laughs> and they have, to, they have to look around. And I remember they did come back. And it wasn't this big fanfare. It wasn't this, like, real dramatic time. They literally just, like, opened the door, and I walked in and went home. <laughs> and, uh, and, and dinner had already been eaten by everybody. <laughs> and it's things like that, you know, to persevere and to wait and to not spend that time as we're waiting for God to answer our prayers. We don't grumble. We don't think that he's finally, he's finally given up. But we know that he is a faithful God, that his love is steadfast and everlasting, and we will get that spiritual meal. And we will enjoy his presence. And we will be at peace with how he unfolds that life for us. And we use this time as we're waiting to have our, our faith strengthened by him. Don't be discouraged. Have hope. He will not forget you. Another thing that we should do is to be in a daily habit of confession and repentance. This is huge. We need to hear the echo of Christ's words in our hearts every single day when he asks Peter... Are you going to leave too? Every single day, people around us are living an ordinary faith. And essentially, that will just dwindle down to no faith at all. And they will essentially leave Christ and leave his fellowship. And we need that that words of Christ to echo in our ears every single day. Are you going to leave him too? And we need to confess with our heart and say, where else am I going to go? Yes, maybe I'd like things to be a little easier, but Christ, you have everything that my heart desires. You have eternal life for me, and I know that eternal life is found in you. You have intimacy, and I know that it's found in you. You have friendship that comes with you, and I know that that's found in you. You have forgiveness of my sin. Christ, where else am I going to go to find forgiveness of my sin? We need to confess that every single day. And essentially, that's what we're doing on Sunday. And essentially, that's what we do when we participate in the Lord's Supper, is we are continually confessing our hearts to Christ, saying, we are Christ. We belong to Him. We are not leaving Him. We're following Him. We need to repent. Every day when our hearts express an ordinary faith, when our words express an ordinary faith, when our thoughts and desires and actions express an ordinary faith, we need to repent of those. And repentance is really turning our face from, you know, it's away from God and our back, our our face is towards sin and our back is towards God. And repentance is turning our face towards Christ and our back towards sin. And every single day we need to examine ourselves and examine our heart, and we need to confess those things that we see that are in opposition to God's word, and we need to turn from them. And you guys, this is every day. I mean, this, it's not like, wow, I confessed to that, I repented of my life of sin, onward we go. But this is something we need to do every single day. We don't crucify Christ every single day, and it's not like he has to die all over again. But our repentance and our confession is a way for us to be accountable in our life before God.
and to enjoy his spiritual blessings every single day. And fourthly and lastly, give thanks for the blessings that you have. Christ, he took these five loaves of barley and these three fish, and what did he do with them? It seemed like so little, right? It seemed like nothing. A couple sardines, a couple broken pieces of, of poor man's bread, and he gave thanks. When God gives, I want you to know this, he doesn't just give enough, but he gives abundantly. He gives more than enough. And his passage illustrates that. He doesn't just feed them so that they had their fill. He feeds them and there is 12 baskets left over. One basket for every disciple to carry back to Jesus. Our cup overflows with the blessings that Christ offers. You know what was so neat as I learned this week that it was actually a Jewish law and a Jewish practice uh, that when they ate a meal, they always left one bite remaining on their plate. And they did this because it was symbolic of the blessing that they had because they would eat their meal and be completely satisfied and still there was some left over. And this is the way that God loves us, that we are completely satisfied beyond what we need and there's still left over. It's pouring water into a cup and it being full and then just continuing to pour and it just flowing over. This is the way that God loves. We need to know that and we need to be in the habit of giving thanks for what we do have today. We need to be in the habit of of thanking God that he has sustained us beyond what we need and knowing that there are blessings that are to come each and every day. You guys pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this beautiful passage that exposes an ordinary faith and a life of extraordinary faith. Now we want to love you and have a faith that is not just plain and everyday but we want to recognize that you are a God of miracles, that you are a God of everlasting blessing, that you are a God of peace and patience and mercy. I pray that we would would persevere, that each and every day we would examine our hearts and, and look deep inside our heart to see if we are confessing you every day of our lives that we would not forget to be in the habit of encouraging one another and confessing our sin to each other. Help us to go from here today to, to feast on you with faith and gladness in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.